This is the word of the Lord from uh, Luke 15. He also said, A man who had two sons, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the state I have come into me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his state in foolish living. After he had spent everything, uh, a severe famine struck the country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his, uh, his field from the pots that the pigs were eating, but no one would he give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your higher workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put, him, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with feast, because his, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him? Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. Thanks, Haziel. Sorry the scripture reading was so long. Somebody get him a throat lozenge. Uh, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you. Um, I did not expect the, like, uh, you know, I don't, I, you just like my wife talking about me, but I'm really glad that she threw Steve under the bus as well. So that would be a fun, like, family gathering activity as like a pastoral roast sometime. We could do that. Um, uh, it's also just called working in the office with Myung. So uh, that's good. <laughs> Uh, if you're new, we are going through a teaching series called Stories of the Kingdom in which we're looking at various parables that Jesus told. Jesus was a master storyteller 
In his preaching ministry, it says repeatedly throughout the pages of the Gospels that Jesus never didn't, he always, he always preached with parables. He used stories and used illustrations. And some of these parables are so famous that even people who aren't necessarily followers of Jesus know them, like the phrase, the prodigal son. That's something that is just used colloquially by people who may or may not ever read the Bible, may or may not follow Jesus. And so we're looking at these stories because here, here's, the, here's the heart behind this series. If you're a Christian, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Amen? You were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into his marvelous light. You're a citizen of a new kingdom. But on this side of eternity, we are also citizens of earthly kingdoms. And what was true for Jesus' first hearers is also true for us today, that earthly kingdoms like to flex. They like to uh, imagine that they're the most important And so we, as citizens of this kingdom of heaven, need constant fresh reminders, a fresh imagination to remember what it means to live first and foremost, more than we're Americans, more than whatever nationality you may be, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And these stories that Jesus told help stir the imagination to remind us of that incredible truth. And today we're doing, yes, the parable of the prodigal son, but we're actually doing all three of these parables together from Luke 15 in a teaching that I've entitled, The One Where Everything is Lost and Then Found Again. So will you join with me in a word of prayer and then let's dive in. Lord, we thank you that you are a God whose heart is full of passionate love for us. And Lord, we thank you that today we get to open these pages of the scripture and that spirit, you will bring these to life in our hearts and in our minds. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would help me to teach only what is in line with the truth of your word. And I pray that every single one of us right now would have our hearts brought more fully alive in the passionate love of our God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, I, I will admit, I will confess I like parties. I like parties. I know that I, I you know, uh, I, not everybody does, but I do. I like parties. I like going to parties. I really, really like hosting parties. I think that actually Aaron Lynn and I, my wife, uh, God gave us both kind of a spiritual gift of hosting parties and kind of creating good environments where people can have joy and can have uh, excitement. In fact, I view... Um, these Sunday worship gatherings and kind of my role in them as like hosting an every single week gospel celebration party. I really, really hope and pray that when we gather together like this, we can say, man, look how incredible Jesus is and look how awesome the gospel is and let's celebrate and let's party. That's something that the Lord has just, I think, gifted me in and it's, it's a joy for me to be able to do. Not everyone likes parties. Uh, your neighbors, for example, uh, might not like a party. Uh, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but have you ever had like a party or then a neighbor came over and angrily knocked or, or maybe even have you had somebody else having a party and you're like, I'm trying to put the kids to bed. I'm trying to go to bed. And this party vibe is not making me happy. And you're like, it sounds like Pitbull. I don't know what Pitbull music sounds like, but it sounds like Pitbull and I'm really mad. So imagine, if you will, a hypothetical you know, scenario where you're really upset and you go over to your neighbor's house and you bang on the door and you say, you're being too loud. And they look at you and they say, oh man, I'm super sorry. Um, my kid has been battling 
cancer for the last several years and we just got a complete and total clean bill of health from the doctor and we are just celebrating. Don't you feel like an idiot now, right? Like in this hypothetical thing I just made up, right? Like you're on the outside looking in. You don't know the reason for the party. You're bothered by the party. But when you hear the reason for the party, you're like, that is a good reason to have a party. I'm sorry, I will go back and put earbuds, you know, ear, you know earplugs in and ignore your pit bull or whatever they're playing. This is the situation that is happening in Luke chapter 15. Jesus is going to tell these three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But the context is some grouchy people who do not understand the value of a party. Go back to verse 1 of Luke 15. It says this. It says, uh, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, that him being Jesus. So all these tax collectors, all these sinners, all these bad people really liked hanging around with Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Now, a little context I think is helpful here. The Pharisees get picked on by Jesus, rightly so, but I want to just help us have just the slightest little bit of like understanding, some contextual understanding of why the Pharisees are the way they are. So if you remember the story of the Old Testament, God chooses one family, one people group, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, and he says, God says, through this family, every nation on the earth is going to be blessed. And God called them into a special relationship, a covenant, the, the, the terms of which are spelled out in the Torah. God says, you're going to keep my covenant. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And I'm going to use you to bring blessing to the ends of the earth. Well, now, friends, if you've read through the Old Testament, what happens? The people of Israel are not faithful to the covenant. They worship other gods. They're violent. They're sexually immoral. They give place to all sorts of, of covenant violations. And God, for centuries, I'm not joking, for centuries, pleads with them. He sends the prophets. He, he says, you need to turn or there will be consequences. And after many centuries of God's patience, God's mercy, finally, there came the tipping point where God says, fine, the consequences I said way back in Deuteronomy with Moses are being enacted, and the people of Israel were removed from the promised land. They were taken into exile in Babylon, forcibly removed from their homes. But after some time, a few generations, the Lord raised up the Persian king, Cyrus, who issued a decree and said, all of the people may go back home to their land. And the people went back home rejoicing under the leadership of men like Ezra and Nehemiah, and they got to rebuild the temple, and they got to rebuild the city walls, and they got to reestablish life in the promised land. And, and there's this group of religious leaders, these people that would call the people together and say, hey, let's not do stupid stuff again. Let's take seriously the commandments of the Lord. Let's take seriously the Torah. Let's take seriously God's call to live in this covenant with him. And so they started calling people to covenant faithfulness. And this is where we get the Pharisees. Now, this is not a trick question. Is it a good thing to call people to live obedient lives to the word of God? Yes. So the Pharisees were trying to do a good thing. But here's the thing. They lost the plot in two ways. There's really two things that Jesus is always uh, uh, challenging them, correcting them, rebuking them on. The first one is 
that the Pharisees said, well, instead of just being faithful to the commandments of the Lord, we better add some extra commandments. If there's a line here you're not supposed to cross, we better add another line, and then we better add another line, and we better add, I'm going to make sure I'm not going to trip on Ben's base, add another line. Like, you need, to, you need to keep adding all these lines. They literally talked about putting fences around the fences around the fences. And then, that means the Pharisees aren't calling people to obey God, but to obey man-made rules. It is a really good thing. It is not legalism to say, you need to obey the commands of the Lord. It is legalism, and it is folly to add all sorts of man-made rules and say, you must live according to these. You tracking? So that's one thing that Jesus is really upset with the Pharisees about, is the addition of man-made rules. But the second thing that Jesus is on their case about is their joylessness, their grouchiness. They've lost the plot. They're sitting there saying, how can Jesus welcome sinners and tax collectors forgetting that every single person from Israel was a proverbial sinner who was welcomed back into the promised land through a sheer act of the mercy and grace of God? They're sitting there with the spiritual gift of sucking on lemons when Jesus is saying, I'm throwing a party and I'm inviting you to come experience the love of God. So, that's what's going on here. That's the, that's the context for these three stories. You know, they, these, these stories focus on lostness and foundness, if that's a word. Lostness and foundness. But I actually would argue that the lostness and the foundness is more of a, just kind of a plot point, and that really the heart of these parables is about happiness versus grouchiness. That's what these stories are about. Now, notice also it says, Jesus told them this parable, and then he tells three parables. I like that. As a preacher, that makes me feel good about taking some liberties with the clock or things like that. But so here, here's the first one, right? The first parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the lost sheep. He says, what man among you who has a hundred sheep? That's a pretty good flock. It's a good-sized flock, good businessman. But you lose one of them. Who of you wouldn't leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? Now, in case you're wondering, like, well, hold on a second. That's like a, that seems kind of like reckless. That seems like a little bit of like maybe bad business practice to leave the 99 out in the open field and go chasing after one. If you're thinking that, you're right. This is surprising behavior. It's a little, like, if, if you work in business, you're like, I've got a 99% client retention rate. I'm going to waste a whole week chasing after this one client that doesn't want to return my phone calls. Like, let them go. You got a 99% client retention rate. I'm stretching it a little bit here. But you guys get what I'm saying, right? This is, this is kind of surprising and kind of shocking. But it gets even more shocking. When he has found it, Jesus says, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, this isn't just like, oh, I'm going to put the sheep on my shoulders. He's joyfully putting it on his shoulders. Okay, any of you kids in the room, you ever had like your mom or your dad put you on their shoulders? Does your dad sound joyful when he's like, like kind of grunting to lift you up, right? Yeah, there was a time. He's joyfully I just love that Jesus uses that. Like, you could just say, oh, and then he puts the sheep on his shoulders and has to carry it because it's an idiot sheep and it got stuck or whatever. He's like, no, he joyfully does it. And then he goes back and comes home and he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me for I have found my lost sheep. He throws a party, a sheep finding party. <laughs> Add that to your 2023 plans. And then Jesus explains a little bit. He says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven 
over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Hold on to that uh, righteous people who don't need repentance. Hold on to that line for later, okay? So the lost sheep, the sheep finder, the sheep finding party. Parable number two, the lost coin. What woman, Jesus goes on, has 10 silver coins And if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully, or some translations say search diligently until she finds it. When she finds it, again, call the friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. So now we're having a money party, a money finding party. And I tell you, Jesus, again, explains a little bit. He says, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. So when you hear this parable and you think of a silver coin, you might be thinking of like a quarter, 25 cents, right? But I did a little bit of digging. The word in the Greek there for silver coin is a drachma. And a drachma was, at that time, roughly equivalent to one day's wages. Like the average worker would make about a drachma a day. And so I went on the, uh, what is it, the Department of the Treasury, and I found the statistic that the average hourly wage in the United States of America is $27.62 per hour. That's kind of averaged out across all jobs. And if you take that to about an eight-hour workday, let's just say roughly $225. I'm, I'm, I had to use a calculator for that. I'm a musician. I can count to eight if I start at five, okay? <laughs> By the way, sorry, quick side note. Speaking of being a musician, you're in the room, so you have to listen to this. Um, when I was in college going to music school, yeah, <laughs> she, she, she did stalk me. Erin Lynn hunted me down like a lioness on the Serengeti taking down a gazelle, I was forced to marry her, and uh, but <laughs> so we got married really young, and we were in college in our early married years, and I was studying to be a music teacher, and she came home one day, and I was in between guitar lessons, and she goes, she goes, hey, I heard a joke today. What's the difference between a large pizza and a musician? A large pizza can feed a family of four. said, I'll show you. I'll go into ministry. That'll really be. <laughs> Anyways, that's, um, that's my math joke. Anyways, uh, but the point of this is like, if you lost a coin, okay, whatever, big deal. But in the context of the story, like if you lost 200 bucks, yeah, you'd better believe you'd start searching the house, right? Especially if it was one tenth of your possessions. If you only had, you know, 20, $2,250 here, I don't know, I give up, right? Like, this is somebody who is like, oh, this is a significant loss. It's not just a coin, it's not just a quarter, this is a significant loss, and when she finds it, she throws a party and celebrates, and Jesus said, by the way, he says, there will be rejoicing in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. You and I probably at times have been guilty of misquoting this verse to saying that when a sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice, but technically speaking, it says that some Someone is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Who might that someone be that's actually doing the rejoicing here? It's not a trick question. God. God's the one who's rejoicing. Number three, the lost son, often called the parable of the prodigal son. The word prodigal, by the way, we think of it as like wandering and rebellious and sinful, but the word prodigal is kind of an old-fashioned word that just means like excessive 
you know, wasteful, extra. So this prodigal son is wasteful and extra and excessive in how he lives. But pastor and author Tim Keller wrote a whole book called The Prodigal God, showing that the father is excessive and lavish in his love and grace and forgiveness. If you want that sermon, go listen to Tim Keller. That's not what this one is, okay? Luke 15, 11, he also said a man had two sons. And the younger of the sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he, the father, distributed the assets to them. That word assets in the Greek is bios. And if you know your Greek at all, you know that bios is related to the word like biology. It means life. The idea being there, these, these assets, it's what I've accumulated over the course of my entire life. And when I pass away, I will distribute my, my life's assets, my life's possessions to you. And so many scholars say that a case can be made in this moment that this son is essentially walking up to his father and saying, I wish you were dead and I had your stuff. This is not just some kind of foolish kid who, who kind of, you know, is bad with money. This is a despising of his father. Keep that in mind. Now, many days later, the, not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and he traveled off to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he'd spent everything, well, the timing was really bad because a severe famine struck that country and now he had nothing. He ended up having to go to work for one of the citizens in that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs and he longed to eat from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. So think about this in a Jewish context, right? This is working for someone who is non-Jewish, non-Israelite, because they keep pigs, an unclean animal. And in fact, he is, he's sunk so low that he's actually jealous of the, non-clean, the unclean animal itself. Like this is, this is um, Jesus storytelling hyperbole at its finest. It is the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the low. Now, He came to his senses, verse 17, and he said, how many of my father's like hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'm gonna get up. I'm gonna go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to even be called your son. Just hire me back like a a hired worker. So he got up and went to his father. I, I, I really think there's a beautiful portrait of true repentance there. He, he's not just sorry that he, you know, he messed up. He's not just sorry that he's in this destitute place, but he's actually saying, like, I've sinned against God. And there's real repentance happening there. Now, he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with what? Compassion. That is an inward stirring of the heart with passion. With passion is what that word means. And the father ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. Um, Every commentary I own says that in that culture, old men didn't run. I can't find a single ancient source that corroborates it. I'm a little bit suspicious that it's one of those like legends that's grown up over time. But maybe you can do the research and get back to me. Either way, there's a lot of passion. He's running, he's hugging, he's kissing. His heart is filled with compassion. This is not the, 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 the attitude or the behavior of a dad who goes, oh, very interesting. My son has decided to return. I guess we can open the gates. Like this is like, yes! Been waiting for this day. 
The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father just looked at him and said, nonsense. He grabs the servants, get the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Let's get some, let's get some sandals on those bare feet of his and get the, get the fattened calf. We're going to have like the, the best tenderloin. We're going to get the nice marbled meat, you know, the good fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate it with a feast because this son of mine was dead. He is alive again. He is lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. If you're keeping track at home, that's the third story in a row that ends with a party. Now, this is an introduction of a new character. Those first two stories didn't have very many other characters, just somebody throwing a party. But here Jesus says, now there was another person a real grouchy guy. I wonder who Jesus was. <laughs> His Pharisees are standing there and hearing Jesus tell this story. Do you think it got like really awkward in the moment? Just, I really hope so. <laughs> the grouchy older brother in the field, as he came near the house, he heard music, probably Pitbull, and dancing. And so he summoned, no way, Pitbull is biblical. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning, what the heck's going on? Your brother's here. He told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And he became angry and did not want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. Notice the heart of the father here with this grouchy son. It's not like, well, he doesn't want to come to the party. Good riddance. It's still this pleading heart. Come, be a part of the party. But he replied to his father, look, I have been, ouch, slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. I mean, think about that in the context of these Pharisees. We have never disobeyed the Torah. We've, we're holding true. I've been slaving for you. That's what he thinks his relationship with the father is like. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, that's what you think your relationship with God is like? Just some slave who has to obey all the orders? And the son says, you never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, not even my brother, this son of yours, this is a rich pain, who has devoured all your life with prostitutes, well, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. The father says, son, You're always with me. It's not true. Everything I have is available to you. It's all yours. You've had access to all of this. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus goes on in Luke chapter 16 to tell several more parables. He's not actually done in this run of parables. And these parables get more and more sharp in their pronouncements of judgment. Because coming back to what Jesus said in the first parable about 99 righteous people who don't need to repent, what Jesus is pointing out is that in their quote-unquote righteousness, it's a self-righteousness that has alienated them from the joy and the love of their father. There's no such thing as a person who doesn't need to repent. In this passage, like I said, I'm convinced that this passage is, these stories are less about lostness and foundness, and they're more about rejoicing versus grumbling and resentment towards the the joy of the Lord. 
And Jesus is telling these stories to help us understand what the kingdom of God is like and what the mission of Jesus is like. It's that God sent his son because of his passionate love to rescue us. That, it, that it's not just like, well, God, it's like, I guess I'd better rescue these people. It's like the, there's deep love, there's deep passion in the heart of God that says, I want to rescue my people and invite them into my joy. Is this good news to anybody here today? That you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been saved by his grace, you're not in the family of God, you're not in the kingdom of God because of some sort of like transactional legal document. You're in the family of God because he loves you. And that being with God is to be fully alive, right? You, you could talk about the, the storyline of the Bible maybe in this way, that, that God created all things. He made all things to, uh, for us to enjoy him, to enjoy the creation, but ultimately to enjoy him. How many of you know God created a world of beauty and pleasure? Have you ever had, let's see, um, have you ever had a steak? We know from this passage as well as Leviticus that God is pro-barbecue, okay? It is delicious. I yesterday had Saturday free and I pulled out the smoker and I, I did a very Gentile thing. I smoked a pork shoulder, right? It's just so delicious. You've never had a steak that was free from the effects of sin in the fallen world. Can you imagine what steak's gonna be like in the new heavens and the new earth? This morning as I was driving in early, um, the, the, the sun was starting to rise over the mountains and it's like the black silhouette of the mountains and it's like purple and orange back behind them. And my daughter and I were just like, God, this is so amazing. You've never seen a sunrise in a world free from brokenness and sin. Can you imagine how good the sunrises must have been in the garden? Can you imagine how good they're gonna be at the end of the age when Christ returns and makes all things new, we were meant to enjoy God's good creation and to be fully alive in him and to enjoy him. But how many of you know sin has a numbing effect? Uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor John got a root canal and they had to get all those shots and get his face all, and just, he comes into the office and you know how it is, you get those shots like, Slap him a few times on the face. Can you feel that? I didn't really do that. But like, that's what sin does to us. It numbs us. Every time we take the bait from the devil, every time we give place to the sinful desires of the flesh, we're just numbing ourselves over and over and over again. The Bible talks about having blind eyes or deaf ears or a stony, hard heart. Sin numbs us out. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ came to restore us back to a place of spiritual life and vitality. Yes, Jesus died on the cross as a punishment that we deserve for our sins. But what's more is he rose from the grave on the third day to offer new life to anyone who would believe. Spiritual life here today and one day upon his return, a resurrection body where we will enjoy pain-free sickness-free, disease-free, death-free, the, the, the finest of meats and the choicest of wines, the prophet Isaiah says, in his presence for all of eternity. This is the good news of the gospel. So we love the cross. We absolutely preach the cross, but we do not forget the empty tomb. Because if Jesus only died, then there's no hope for us to have new life, eternal life in him. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, offering new life to all who will believe. And now as we live this life, <coughs> excuse me, 
as we live this life, it's an opportunity for God's passion to grow in us, for us to continue to become more and more and more fully alive in him. You guys tracking with me? Man. Now, I do want to address one objection, particularly from those of you who might be a little bit more theological in your orientation. The objection would be something like this. Well, hold on a second. You're talking about the passion of God. What about the doctrine of the impassibility of God? The impassibility, the the non-passionateness of God. Okay, quick question. How many of you have ever even heard of the doctrine of the impassibility of God? How many of you have never really heard of the doctrine of the impassibility of God? Raise your hands. Oh my gosh, this is so, I am so happy right now. Okay, this is awesome. Okay, the doctrine of the impassibility of God goes a little something like this. Uh, After, you know, Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, the early church era, they are living in a world where many people still believe in and worship many different pagan gods, but especially the Greco-Roman gods, right? Right? Uh, Jupiter, Mars, all those ones, or you know, Zeus or Poseidon or those, the, Gre- the Greek names from before. Uh, I mentioned to you that at the end of last year, I read The Odyssey by Homer. It was fine, whatever. It's, whatever. It didn't change my life. But um, in reading that book, you get introduced to all of these gods. And actually, the whole premise of the book, the whole reason why Odysseus is like on this horrible struggle to get home is because he did something to just make Poseidon mad at him. And Poseidon just decides to just pick on him for 20 years or whatever it is. And so what the, these early church fathers are saying, okay, listen, the Bible speaks about God's joy or his anger or his being grieved or his sadness, but they're saying God is not like those Greco-Roman gods. Where these Greco-Roman gods, something happens and they just fly off the handle and Zeus just starts hurling lightning bolts or whatever. They're saying God, the God of the Bible, is not like that. He is not overwhelmed by his passions. He is not affected by people or events or things outside of himself. He is like a rock. He is sovereign over all things, including his own affections and his own emotions. How many of you have ever just been overwhelmed by emotion? How many of you have ever driven on I-5? And all of a sudden, you're just, you, you feel like something just kind of comes over you. In those moments, somebody says something, somebody does something, traffic's bad, and all of a sudden you're like, you know, we even use language like, oh, I'm I'm out of control of my emotions. Friends, the good news about who our God is is, and this doctrine of the impassibility of God, he's not like that. In fact, you could say, oh, God feels love. Actually, it might be more theologically and biblically accurate to say that God is love. That God doesn't experience emotions in the same way that you and I do. He is just loving through and through. He is just merciful through and through. He is just joyful through and through. And so that is really good news because it means you're not going to catch God on a bad day. God didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day and decide to just smite you with lightning bolts. It means that if you're in Christ, you can go to God and know that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The doctrine of the impassibility of God does not mean that God has no feelings or emotions. It means that he only uses them for our benefit. And he can be trusted. Derek Rishmawi is a, a biblical scholar who I really, I really like his writings. He says it this way. He says, the doctrine of impassibility affirms that God did not incarnate himself out of necessity to relieve his own unbearable suffering, 
Instead, in Christ, God freely, willingly, and sovereignly endured suffering, actively making it his own so that ours would be put to an end. To affirm God's impassibility is to confess that God's action in Christ is nothing other than the beautifully gratuitous outpouring of his invincible, unsurpassable, and enduring love for his wayward creatures. It is the foundation of grace itself. Our God's heart is full of passionate love for his creation. I had the privilege to uh, speak at a a friend's church for a men's event a week ago or so. And um, they sang this song. It's a very popular worship song. Um, We have never sung it at Sound City and we probably never will sing it at Sound City. (laughs) The Reckless Love of God. Um, I just... Like Derek Rishmawe had a lot better adjectives to use. I think reckless, is, I don't know, I don't, I don't like that word, using it about God's love, like it's just reckless. Um, but as I was prepping this sermon this week and seeing like the leaving the 99 or throwing a party because of a coin and killing the fattened calf, I had just a little twinge of conviction from the Holy Spirit. Like I don't want to be like the Pharisees. I don't want to be too grouchy about the words used to describe this overflowing, invincible, sometimes it even looks... Like, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do what God did. Still not going to sing Reckless Love, though. Sorry. <laughs> so as we said, each week we want to ask some questions to help stir the imagination for what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom. So living as citizens of the kingdom means that God is always throwing kingdom parties when things that are lost are found, when people that are lost are found. And so I want to ask three questions to help stir the imagination. And you can even ponder these questions before you come forward for communion. You can talk about them this week in your groups, around the dinner table. You can go for a walk and and, and talk to God about them. You can pray these three questions, maybe just in your own personal quiet time. Take some time for silence and solitude and just ponder this question. Question number one, what is God's disposition toward you? What is God's attitude toward you? If I can use this language, how does God feel about you? I believe, I think I can say this with with a high degree of confidence, there's not a single person here who has a big enough view of God's passionate love for you. Some of you are like, well, Aaron, you don't understand. I I really, I sinned a lot this week. I I lost my temper. I drove on I-5. I... You know, I, I fell behind on my bills. I'm not very good at managing my money. I'm kind of foolish in that way. And, and, and you're, you're thinking as you come forward for communion today, like, man, I'd better, I better really clean some stuff up so that God's, you know, God's kind of standing there, you know, the, 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 the server saying, you know, the, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, man, just instead of for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. When you come forward today, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, and God did it with passionate love and joy for you? Is God's brow kind of furrowed, his eyes kind of scowling at you, his arms kind of folded, or is he like that father with his arms wide open and goes, man, I was waiting for you to repent. 
I know that backpack full of rocks that you've been carrying. That's so heavy. Throw that backpack off. Come to me. Let me clean you up. Let's throw a party. What is God's attitude toward you? When you get quiet and you get alone and there's no one there and there's not a preacher there and there's not a podcast there and you're just sitting quietly in the presence of God, what is his disposition toward you? Second question. What makes you numb? What do you turn to that is sinful? Maybe not even sinful in and of itself, but what makes you feel that numbness? I read a book this last fall. It's called The Book of Waking Up by Seth Haynes. Man, one of the just best books I've read in quite a while. And in this book, he shares stories about his own alcohol addiction. Um, After his son died, he turned to drinking heavily to numb the pain. But in this book, this author says that, you know, we were created to feel and to enjoy the goodness of God in his creation. And when we experience the fallenness and the brokenness in this world, we want to numb that pain, but it numbs us not just to the pain, but it numbs us to the pleasure and the delight of walking with God. And he goes on to explain, it can be, it can be kind of, you know, quote unquote, those bigger sins like alcohol addiction or pornography or other sexual sins. But he says, it can also just be shopping on Amazon, watching TV, just food itself. The stuff of earth gives us these pleasures that are meant to turn us in delight to God, but instead we use the stuff of earth to just numb us out. Friends, we can even do that with religious stuff. The older son was numb to his father's love because of his moral uprightness. You're such a good person. You never do the wrong thing. You don't feel God's love. So what makes you numb? Third question. How can we share this passion, this love, this fire? Do you know that you are like literally surrounded in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, everywhere you go, you are surrounded by people that are spiritually dead. They're all the way numbed out and they need to be set on fire in a good way with the love of God. And he's uniquely and strategically positioned you in their lives to share that love with them. Man, uh, it makes me think of like on the 4th of July when you, you light like a, you sparklers, the kids like those sparklers, and they always want to do this. They always want to light the first sparkler and then like pass it on sparkler to sparkler. Probably not the most responsible thing you can do to let kids just throw fire around or whatever, but it's for freedom. It's for America, okay? <laughs> but just the idea of like you're passing on the spark, you're passing on the fire. Has God lit your heart on fire with his passionate love? Who do you need to share it with? Man, living as a citizen of the kingdom, this is no boring kingdom. This is a kingdom that throws party after party after party. Yes, we'll talk about sorrow another week. That's part of it too. But for today, would you be reminded that our God is full of passionate love? He is passionate love. He loves you, and there are others out there that he loves that he wants you to share that love with. And it all comes through the person and the work of Christ Jesus. And as we prepare ourselves to come to the table, let's party. You did not take me seriously on that. Man, I mean, we, we want to be reflective and somber or whatever, but like when they say, body of Christ broken for you, you'd be like, yes, awesome. My sins are forgiven. 
I've been invited into the kingdom of God. This is such good news, friends. And then when we sing, let's sing loudly because our God loves us. Pastor Steve, will you come lead us in communion? Friends, let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are love. And we thank you that your love is not like our love or like the pagan gods kind of love. Lord, you just are who you are from top to bottom and you can be trusted. And so Lord, would you help us now as we come to the table, as we lift our voices to sing, would you help us to rejoice in who you are and what you've done for us? Lord, thank you that you are throwing kingdom parties and we're invited to join you at the table. Help us to do so now because of what Christ has done for us. In his name, amen.